This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not clear if the U.S. will back out of the Paris climate deal under the Trump administration. On Sunday, the president-elect told Fox News that he's studying it. Quote, I don't want the agreement to put us at a competitive disadvantage, unquote. Trump outlined his stance on climate change in general during the campaign. I'm not a big believer in man-made climate change. It could be some impact, but I don't believe it's uh, a devastating impact. Uh, I am a huge believer in clean water and clean air, crystal clean water and air. I'm a very big believer in that, and we have a lot to do with that, keeping our water clean, keeping our air clean. Um, But no, I would say that uh, it goes up, it goes down. I think it's very much like this over the years. That's him speaking to the Miami Herald in August. Meanwhile, Trump has nominated a climate change doubter to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. Oklahoma's Attorney General Scott Pruitt has said the climate change debate, his words, is far from settled. That is, despite broad scientific consensus. What more than 800 Earth scientists and energy experts have sent a letter to the president-elect urging him to take specific steps to address climate change. Roughly 70 of those who signed it are from Colorado, including CU Boulder ecologist Alan Townsend. He has dedicated much of his career to studying rainforests. He's also an associate vice chancellor for research. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here. One thing this letter implores Trump to do is, quote, publicly acknowledge that climate change is a real human-caused and urgent threat. But hearing Trump's comments there, I wonder how much it matters if he doesn't end up embracing man-made climate change. If he wants crystal clear air and water, is that a means to the same end, do you think? No, I don't think it's a sufficient means. Um, in some ways, there's overlap, but there are there are different questions there. Uh, you know, as the letter points out, if if he maintains this stance, he would be really the only major leader um, of a, of you know a number of countries who who takes that stance. And having unity so that we can come together and work on it is really pretty critical. And climate change is about far more than just clean air and clean water. And honestly, the thing that concerns me even about that is that, you know, you mentioned his recent nomination for the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and, and this is someone who is not just has a record of um, expressing a disbelief in the science of climate change, but in um, repeatedly and directly opposing uh, regulations or laws that come through the EPA that are directly um, there to try to protect our clean air and water. So it, it's hard for me to have a lot of trust in that statement. The letter you signed calls for the new administration to take six steps. Listeners can read all of them at cprnews.org, but they include making America a clean energy leader, reducing carbon pollution, upholding America's commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, Alan, take me into your thinking about signing this letter. Did you wonder at a certain point if it was a fool's errand? (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't harbor a, a lot of illusions that a letter alone like this is going to be a game changer in the, you know, in the policy stance of the incoming administration. Um, but I, I signed it for a number of reasons. I mean, one, because I genuinely believe in the major points that the letter expresses and that they're important for society as a whole. Um, 
Second, you know, I think it is is key for many of us to continue to just get the word out and to continue to try to keep this issue on the table, whether or not a given letter makes a difference. Um, as we can see right here, this helps us continue to have the conversation. And, you know, I'm hopeful with time that uh, a number of those efforts altogether will, will start to move the needle a little bit. Any indication Trump has seen the letter? Have you heard? I don't know. Okay. You signed the letter, I'll say, before Trump named Pruitt to lead the EPA. In general, what have your thoughts been regarding climate change and the Trump administration? Uh, perhaps take us into your thinking during the campaign and a post-election. Sure. Um, you know, a couple things there, and you're correct. I did sign it before then. You know, I think like a number of us, um, when it just comes to climate change, we – Many of us held out some hope that despite the, the tone and things said during the campaign that um, he himself had a, a mixed record in the past of even the beliefs or the stances that he expressed um, almost all over the map. And we were hopeful anyways that if it made a transition from a campaign into a, an actual transition to an administration, um, that a more moderate stance uh, might be taken. Um, unfortunately, I think we're seeing the reverse of that uh, in in the actions that he's taking in forming his cabinet and indeed in some of the stances that he's taken as recently as just yesterday, as you said, um, in that interview. Uh, so that is that is concerning to me. Um, you know, there is uh, overt statements both from him and from those who he at least is nominating to be members of administration to – to not only um, to do two things, to to try to reverse some of the progress that's been made under the Obama administration to try to take us forward, to, to lower the risks of climate change, as well as to promote new policies that would accelerate um, – would accelerate for us. And, you know, that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, but could, could it, thing I, just, just on that point, could it be argued that markets are a strong force for fighting climate change? And that Absolutely. if, say, renewables are competitive and attractive, markets and not so much government will drive the fight against climate change, that maybe this represents a shift in where the mandate comes from, if you will. So, I, 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 yes, um, I, I think that's a – but I would not put it as an either-or, right? So um, can markets be an, an important and effective force in doing it? Absolutely. And in fact, we're seeing that. And that's one of the – that's one of the disappointing gaps between some of the stance in this administration and the reality of what we're seeing within this country and beyond is that so many leading companies are already taking steps to try to mitigate the effects of climate change, to try to deal with it, and in many cases to recognize it not only as a problem that we have to deal with as a society, but also an opportunity, an opportunity to advance their own competitiveness. And, and they've been right out front about that. And so, you know, in some ways, regardless of what the new administration does, um, I'm sure many of them will continue on that path. The problem comes when you don't have the markets being you know, completely free and open. And if you're advancing policies that, that really stand in the way and prevent the kind of progress on alternate clean energy that we need. And then, Alan, you were making another point and I interrupted you. Well, you know, the thing that doesn't get raised a lot, but, but I honestly think is really critical here when you asked about the campaign and how I felt. And one of the most problematic things for me is goes beyond just a policy stance. Um, I'm very willing to accept differences in policy stances, even when I don't believe in them. Uh, but but the tone set in much of the campaign and even since that, that has really um, 
left us in this country with a tone of increasing hate and bias and division and pitting people against each other is it's not only fundamentally wrong on basic human and moral terms, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what we need to do to fix the kind of social challenges. If we're going to deal with, with whatever is in front of us, including climate change, you know, it's really critical that people come together around it, that people are involved together. And so that is a piece of this that concerns me greatly is that sends us in the wrong direction there as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is ecologist at CU Boulder uh, and Professor Alan Townsend. He's among hundreds of scientists and energy experts who signed a letter to President-elect Donald Trump uh, imploring him to take six specific steps related to climate change. You can read those at cprnews.org. And as I said, uh, they implore him to hold on to the Paris climate deal, for instance, and to make America a clean energy leader. Uh, I do understand that that you think there's been something of a failing among scientists with regards to communicating to the public about climate change. Would you expound on that for us? Yeah, you know, and and, and I I would go a little different and beyond that. I mean, I think I think we can do a better job of communicating it, but but I think what's more important than communicating it is is stepping up to the plate of responsibility of really trying to help um, fix it in, in very practical ways. So, you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot lately is, 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 a, is a real distinction between, say, some of the actions and statement of the, statements of the incoming administration um, and those who voted for this administration. And I see those very different. Um, right. And so we have we know that there are a lot of people in this country who are hurting. There are a lot of people who made these choices because of stresses or pressures that they're feeling in their own lives. Um, and one of the things that worries me is that as we experience greater environmental change, greater climate change, those stresses for many of those who can least afford it are just going to increase. Hmm. But to me, there's a responsibility for those of us in the scientific community to try to make our own choices and our own actions as much as we can directed towards, first of all, understanding that, not insulting it, not trying to, you know, sow greater division, but really understanding where those concerns come from. Would you give me an example? figure out how we can help. Give me me an example of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a personal example that's been on my mind a lot, right? So you mentioned at the beginning that I've spent a lot of time studying rainforests, and I have. And, you know, I don't do it just because I think they're beautiful places. They are. I've done it in large part because they're parts of the world that matter a lot to all of us, and they do. And so I'm not demeaning their importance. But, you know, what I've thought a lot more and more lately is that that's a place where it is much harder for me, for example, to be very much around day-to-day the community that lives there, to understand their concerns, to work with them to fix their problems. We try, but working locally is a lot easier way to do that. And I think more and more scientists need to do that. Um, So, you know, we all, we're all people too. We all make our own choices in what we study. And so making those choices informed by truly listening to say, you know, the concerns of farmers in this state, the concerns of those in the recreation industry, the concerns of many who might be directly affected by those, understanding where they need help and trying to put some of our efforts into finding solutions to that help is something that I think we can do better. Do you think it'll change the course of your own research? I'm almost certain it will. Huh. Is, is, I don't know, a Colorado farm or agricultural community something that you'd like to, to study or something? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, one thing that, and I know, I think this was even on your program a while ago, but somebody I work with very closely is a former student of mine and, and researcher here at CU who's been working for the last couple of years on trying to find different ways to more sustainably uh, produce sources of protein for animal feel, feed. And this is a, an environmental problem. We're depleting the oceans of fish for animal feed. We're doing things that really are an issue, but it's also a problem economically and it's an economic opportunity. And so, you know, what Phil is doing and what I'm doing with Phil is trying to work with some local farms to figure out not only can we figure out new ways to do this, but what do they really need? How would we design our own work that fits best with the needs of those farmers so that it's more of a partnership as opposed to just a one-way street? Um, that's how I'm trying to think about designing a lot of my own research efforts in the future. Depleting the oceans for animal feed. Will you just say more about that and 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 remind us who Phil is? I'm so sorry. Yeah, so Phil is is Phil Taylor, who is who is a researcher here at the University of Colorado uh-huh. as well. And uh, so what that means, you know, one of the questions that that I'll hear Phil ask sometimes of audiences is that you know how many of you uh, eat seafood and and people will, and then he'll say, well, the truth is, just about all of you probably do. And the answer is that a lot of the protein that may go into feeding chickens, that may go into feeding pigs, that may go into feeding a lot of the meat that any of us eat, if you do eat meat, um, can come from the oceans. It comes from fish meal ground up and turned into protein of one kind or another, which is which just creates all sorts of issues. And so if there are ways that we can figure out how to, how to do that with less impact and more cheaply, we'd all be better off. And that's one of the problems we're working on. And so the effect of this might be to refocus some research. Do you think dollars will flow to you if you do so, though? You know, I, I don't know, and I, and I try not to think about that first. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I really don't. I mean, it, obviously, it takes money to do research, but but um, the point is to try to both understand the nature of a problem and see what we can do about it. So that's that comes second. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. That's ecologist and professor Alan Townsend of CU Boulder. He is among many hundreds of scientists and energy experts who signed a letter to President-elect Donald Trump. It encourages him to take six steps to fight climate change. And as we've said, you can read their letter at CPRnews.org. As we continue to cover climate change, CPR News wants to hear from you. What do you want to know about the issue? What are you seeing out there across the state? Email environment at CPR.org. Environment at CPR.org. Coming up, two sisters, one who almost certainly will develop Alzheimer's early in life and one who likely won't. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sisters Robin and Jessica McIntyre have a pact. When Robin, who's 33, develops Alzheimer's, which she's almost certain to do, Jessica, who's 36, will take care of her. Their family, from way, way back, carries a genetic mutation for early-onset Alzheimer's. Blood tests reveal Robin, who lives in Wyoming, has the gene, but Jessica, who lives in Denver, does not. And uh, Robin and Jessica, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Take me to the day you made this agreement with each other. It may have even started on the day I found out my genetic results. Jessica had traveled to Pittsburgh with me, and this was in May of 2012. 
we were finishing up the genetic counseling meeting where I received the unfortunate and unlucky news that I do carry the genetic mutation that causes early onset Alzheimer's. Not only did Jessica say that she would be there every minute for me, but I believe she even went as far to offer to carry a baby for me and do things that any loving sister, you know, would do. Jessica, what do you remember about that day? I'm the big sister. So my purpose is to take care of my younger sisters, no matter, I mean, whatever, whatever that means. Um, so yeah, I, um, I, I knew as soon as that news came, or if not before, that I've that I've always been going to take care of them. As soon as I found out in 2006 that I did not carry the gene, I knew that there was family members that were going to, and that I'm that I'm here, and that is my purpose is to take care of not only my sisters, but if I have cousins that end up with the disease, um, that, that that's my job. This was not a test you could have in your own backyard. I think you said you went to Pittsburgh to do this. Um, your family has played really a big role in Alzheimer's research over the years. In fact, a book about your mom's side, the DeMoe family, is due out early next year. Let's go back a generation or two. Do you know when the first documented case of, of early onset Alzheimer's was in your family, Jessica? I would say from what we can remember, and you might have to help me with this, it was our grandfather is when we kind of started. Our mother's father was okay. when we started, and he had received his diagnosis kind of well before Alzheimer's was actually a big talked about thing. Um, I don't remember what year specifically, but he was in his early 40s, early to mid 40s, and he got diagnosed at the VA hospital. And upon that diagnosis, they told my grandmother there was nothing they could do and just to take him home. Oh, Robin, do you remember your grandfather? No, not really. He passed away in the late 80s, and he was in his late 50s. In the late 80s, I was only maybe seven years old. Uh And the memories I do have of my grandfather were visiting him in the VA, where he was bedridden and couldn't speak, but still loved to eat a candy bar. Still loved to eat a candy bar. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's my most memorable thing about him. Picture of him. Yep. Picture, yeah. yeah. It's funny what sticks out when you're a kid, you know? Yes, absolutely. And so at, at what age did you come into the the knowledge, the realization that this could be a possibility for you? Jessica, it sounds like you got tested much earlier yes. than Robin. Yes. I would say it was in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s when when we were when we started really becoming more knowledgeable knowledgeable about the disease, and it was when our two uh, two of our uncles had we had begun to start worrying about them, and then it was um, a few years, so uh, late teens, early twenties for myself. These uncles, I think they both worked in in North Dakota oil fields, right? Yes. Correct. And how did they learn of of the early Alzheimer's? Pardon me. Their boss had actually come to um, my grandma and said that they were afraid something was wrong with the boys, that 
Um, they were maybe a little bit more in danger at work in a job where you do have to be on top of your game and very aware of what's going on around you. Um, things that normally weren't an issue were starting to slip. And when that boss came to our grandmother and aunt, they sort of went into a panic and remembered the way their father had behaved and acted and now thought, oh, my gosh, could this also now be happening in our generation? Wow, so it was a, it was a boss coming to the family yes. that really almost led to this awakening. It was. They'd grown up together uh, in this very, very, very small town in North Dakota. So their boss had known the boys his whole entire life. So he was one of the first to actually notice okay. uh, that they were declining. This genetic mutation is called PSEN1. Is that right? Correct. Okay. It is one of three genes, the prenicillin one, um, one of three genes where you can have a mutation that will lead to early onset Alzheimer's. And in fact, the first woman treated by Dr. Alzheimer's had the same genetic mutation as our family. Oh, goodness. Alzheimer's carries the name of this, this uh, early doctor. Yes. Jessica, what is it like to know that your sister has the mutation and you do not? Is there a, a certain sense of, I don't know, guilt or relief? Like, what, what are the, what's the mix of emotions? Uh, guilt was by far the, the very first thing that I experienced or feeling that I experienced. Uh, I also knew that that was going to happen from my Aunt Carla, who was the only person and of her siblings that that did not feel that and, and guilt was was her main feeling as well uh, once you get past that I, I kind of knew and told Robin when she found out her diagnosis that the reason that she got it is because she can handle it and and this is the way it's going to work out for us she can handle it I can take care of her and that's how we're just going to move forward so so guilt has subsided uh, substantially I would say and now it's just you know about power and how and how I can support. Uh, my sister and my family. What an interesting interpretation that is. Robin got it because she can handle it. How, what do you What do you think of that interpretation, Robin? <laughs> I, I suspect you you might prefer not to, even though you're strong, right? Well, yes. The doctors tell me that the reason I got the genetic mutation is simply because of bad luck. There is no. It's just like the flip of a coin. At first, I don't think. That was the first mindset I had. Mm -hmm. However, after Jessica telling me that on the first day, I I do believe that I got it because I can handle it. I want to use my knowledge as power to help other people living in fear of, you know, potential early onset Alzheimer's in their families or even just... Um, late onset Alzheimer's, I want to kind of help people realize that even though this is something that's scary and maybe not many 30-year-olds have to face, that knowledge is power and I will do everything I can as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and we're speaking with sisters Robin and Jessica McIntyre. A genetic mutation runs in their family that means uh, those who have it are almost certain to develop early onset Alzheimer's. 
Uh, Robin, it turns out, has that mutation. Jessica does not. And uh, Jessica has agreed to take care of Robin um, if she develops it. I think it's about a, like a 99% chance. Is that ro- right, Robin? Scientifically, they would say if you have the genetic mutation, your chances are 99% of acquiring the disease, yes. And, and the sisters are also the subject, uh, really their family has been, of a lot of research uh, into this particular mutation. So, Robin, do you um, sometimes just, I don't know, like forget where you put your keys, as we all do, and then wonder, is this the start? How do you differentiate that from, you know, just like a mind slip? Yes, I definitely have some mornings where I'm on the verge of a meltdown because I can't find my phone or my keys or I'm feeling, yes, flustered or cloudiness in my brain. And I guess the way I get through that is by talking to other people about it. And then they're like, oh, yes, actually, I go through that too. Or do you want to actually know this crazy, dumb thing that I did? In the beginning, I had myself convinced that my brain was changing. And I actually had to call one of the researchers just to give me some peace of mind. Mm. Um there are scans that can tell you, are there not, how far, like, the disease has progressed and, and what kind of plaque there is? I think that's the, the term, right? Yes. There is a brain scan where you are injected with a radioactive serum called Pittsburgh Compound B, which was created by uh, Dr. Klunk. He's one of the investigators in the research Uh, Before this serum was invented, you could only see the brain at death. So it goes in and does a thermal reading or a thermal showing on the brain where you can see where plaques have formed on the brain. And so have you had that scan? Yes, I have had that scan done once a year for the last six years, which is really important for doctors because never before have they been able to watch someone from such a young age and actually be able to see when the plaque might start forming. They know it starts forming maybe 10 to 15 years before you have any symptoms. So it's really critical for them to be able to see my brain over the years and find out at which point somebody might need to have um, medication. Do you feel like lab rats at all, Jessica? Uh, Robin definitely is a lab rat. I am not. I just support my lab rat. But yeah, she def- to the tune of that we say that very regularly. Really? You, you have conversations oh. about this? Oh, yeah, all the time. What do they sound like? I'm a lab rat. <laughs> You're a lab rat. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just it's going through the motions constantly. And she is uh, she is identified by a number. And not her name, as is all of our family. So it, it's, it, yeah, it definitely has that feeling for her. Yeah, it's the, the family in total. What drugs are there that could help? And it, it, can the family contribute to research that helps in that arena? Absolutely. I'm actually um, currently in a tr- clinical drug trial on an experimental drug that they hope will eliminate plaque from the brain and neutralize it or eliminate it through the bloodstream. I'm one of 105 people in the world on this particular drug in the clinical drug trial. 
There are a couple of drugs on the market, but are for people who are symptomatic and only really help the patients for a short amount of time. Currently, there is nothing to slow down, prevent, or cure Alzheimer's. So they're hoping that these new drug trials through the Diane Project will lead them to Something of a breakthrough. Absolutely. Diane is the dominantly inherited Alzheimer network, uh, which you are taking part in, as we said. Yes. So have you written out what you want when you start forgetting, if you start forgetting, Robin? Absolutely. I make notes here and there. There's nothing set in stone like a power of attorney or anything really official yet. However, those types of things will need to be put in place. But when things come to mind... Like what? Yeah. Well, I was my mom's caregiver. And so a lot of the times I was trying to remember or think of things that she liked or that made her happy or brought her peace. And so when an idea of, oh, I like this exercise the best, I want to make sure people still make sure I do that, or... Well, you, you both do hair, and I understand, Robin, that you want to make sure your hair and makeup are done. <laughs> it's true! <laughs> it's true. You gotta go you, down with dignity. It, that's right. You do have to go down <laughs> with dignity. I look good. I try to look good on a daily basis. I don't want that to have to go by the way, so especially because I'd like to still be public. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. This was amazing. Robin and Jessica McIntyre are sisters. I'd say you're, you're the amazing ones, but um, thank you. Their family carries a genetic mutation that leads to early onset Alzheimer's. Robin lives in Wyoming, Jessica in Colorado. Just ahead, one man's brush with German prisoners of war in Colorado's mountains. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Prisoners of war, hundreds of thousands of them, were held in the U.S. during World War II. German, Japanese, and Italian prisoners. It's history we learned about last week on the show. There were quite a few POW camps here in Colorado, including near Leadville at Camp Hale, which is probably best known as the training ground of the 10th Mountain Division, the skiing soldiers of World War II. Well, after our story, we heard from Lorna Reed of Palisade. Her father, Sergeant Robert Reed, was one of those 10th Mountain soldiers and had a brush with the German POWs. They would play soccer in the middle of the winter with their shirts off. And, and I think Dad thought they were trying to demoralize the Americans, you know, before they went overseas. You know, here's what you're going to be up against. Oh, like, look at us. Look at how tough we are. Yeah, we're stud muffins. <laughs> But she says the Americans at Camp Hale could identify to some extent with the prisoners. They were just soldiers caught up in it, just like our fathers were. Lorna Reed says once her father finished training, he fought in Italy and eventually earned the Silver Star and a Purple Heart. He got hit by shell fragments. He was running ahead to uh, defend his guys, as far as I know, and, and got hit by shell fragments. The experience stuck with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, mentally. Uh, you know, I think all the all the veterans that have put in hard time, oh, how do I say this? Um, it's hard. It's hard on people. Something else that stuck? Sergeant Reed's love of the mountains, which he passed on. We all learn how to ski, and, and we love the snow in the mountains, thanks to Dad and the 10th Mountain. 
Lorna Reed of Palisade, talking about her father, Robert Reed. If one of our stories touches you, let us know on Twitter at Colorado Matters, Facebook CPR News, or email us, news at CPR.org. Craft beer is big business in Colorado. One estimate put the economic impact at $1.7 billion last year. That's a mind-boggling sum to the pioneers who started brewing IPAs in their basements. The growth has led to divisions among the 350 breweries in Colorado over what it means to be craft, and even over how the beer is sold. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. Inside a strip mall south of Mile High... It's happy hour, and beer drinkers pile into strange craft beer company. One of those beer drinkers is Ed Sealover, a writer for the Denver Business Journal. He covers the fledgling industry. It's a lot of soul-searching about what it means to be a craft brewer at this time. The industry has gone from a few cases of beer at the local liquor store to 12% of the market in the U.S. Big beer companies like Anheuser-Busch took notice. They've been buying up craft breweries, including one of Colorado's iconic brands, Breckenridge Brewery. And Sealover says that was a problem. That purchase essentially gave Anheuser-Busch a seat on the board of the Colorado Brewers Guild, which represents the craft beer industry. And they said, look, we are fighting for our lives against big beer now, and big beer has infiltrated the group that's fighting it. This just isn't going to work. To many in the industry, Anheuser-Busch is public enemy number one. And so by June of this year, 14 companies temporarily split from the Colorado Brewers Guild to form a new association. Nobody who formed the guild ever thought that their breweries would be as big as they are or that the industry would look like it does today. That's Brian O'Connell, who runs Renegade Brewing. He sips on a beer at his tap room in Denver. He was part of the group that split off from the guild. It wasn't anything personal. It's, it's, it was a strictly a business decision to protect and keep craft beer moving forward. Craft brewers want the system to stay the way it is, with independent liquor stores that will take a chance on small craft brands. But grocery stores like Safeway want to sell a selection of craft beers too, and that's a threat to O'Connell. What is ultimately going to happen is fewer choices for the consumer. Now, will my taproom be here? Absolutely. But it, the, the liquor store shelves will change drastically. The fight ended up at the Capitol, where liquor and grocery stores eventually hashed out a compromise, a bill that called for a slow phase-in to allow grocery stores to sell full-strength beer and liquor. Liquor stores led the lobbying effort for that bill, and Ron Vaughn, who runs Argonaut Wine and Liquor, noticed that craft brewers felt left out of the negotiations. Then they looked and went, what happened? How come we weren't involved in this? And it's, well, you know, you have an organization who's your voice and you're not paying attention. Vaughn admits that craft brewers may not love the eventual compromise, allowing for the slow phase-in of full-strength liquor licenses for grocery stores. But we made as good a deal as could be had. This is the biggest law change since the repeal of Prohibition. Steve Kurowski runs marketing and operations for the Colorado Brewers Guild. He drinks on an IPA at Call to Arms Brewery in Denver. He says, of course, the devil is in the details. The grocery store bill was sold as a slow phase-in, but Kurowski says it's possible that stores could start getting all of the full-strength liquor licenses they want in just a couple of years. I think what the bill really represents and what was really presented to us is, is two different things. And I'm not sure that 
really anybody's going to come out ahead on this except for the grocery stores and convenience stores. But state liquor officials have more details to work out on the law. So Kurowski says guild members have come back together to speak with one voice. The old executive director is out, a search is underway for a new one, and Breckenridge, which was bought by Anheuser-Busch, is off the guild's board. For so long we've had this nice little insulated industry, um, and in the last 12 months or so, like we've seen some stuff and had to react to some stuff that we're not quite used to. All while they've added 200 breweries to their membership in three years. Reporter Ed Sealever says with that kind of growth, it's a good thing that the craft beer industry is unified again because the challenges are not over. No, by no means are we near the end of the beer wars in Colorado. Because he says chain grocery stores and big beer companies like Anheuser-Busch will not stop fighting to gain access to the lucrative craft beer market. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Now, Colorado is not just growing its own craft beer market, but helping other places do the same, including Italy. That story coming up on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We just heard about the growing pains that Colorado's craft beer industry is experiencing. Meanwhile, in Italy, they're way behind. Several Colorado brewers are helping change that, though. Denver author Brian Jansing co-wrote a book about the scene there, and a key character in it is Italian brewer Alex Liberati. He has moved to Denver and plans to open the first Italian-style brewery in Colorado, and possibly the first in this country. They join me back in May. Alex, 15 years ago, you say Italy was the Galapagos of beer. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, um, Italians 15 years ago weren't too good in uh, speaking English, so they weren't too intertwined with the international brewing community. Because the lingua franca of beer is English? Uh, Well, the lingua franca of the international brewing community is. But, you know, in Italy, no one speaks more than Italian. Well, these years are different, but at the time, it was hard for brewers to actually understand what the good practice um, used by other brewers. So obviously, uh, we developed in a very particular way. People started doing all crazy stuff with their beer um, just because they didn't know that, you know, uh, other people in the world were doing it. So that's why we developed in a certain particular way like the Galapagos so we tried we turned to uh, to uh, to our local ingredients we have we're a very biodiverse country and so we started using all the local ingredients and so yeah that's what's uh, particular I'd say in Italian craft brewing well, and more out importantly of the too is that there were no books written in Italian on brewing oh right so there was nowhere to go they couldn't just go read a book they had to learn German or really understand the English technical terms and and that that's kind of daunting even in your own language. So what are some of the local ingredients that the Italians used that, I don't know, might be somewhat foreign to the rest of the world? Well, uh, it's funny you ask, but, you know, uh, last year uh, we got our first beer style certified by the BJCP, so the Beer Judge Certification Program, and it's actually an Italian grape ale. So, you know, using grapes or wine must or, you know, just wine or uh, wine yeast or and so basically that's one of our styles but along with that we've been using anything you could imagine so from peaches to mint to tobacco chestnuts uh chestnuts that's absolutely how they big thing mm-hmm. um yeah sage whatever i mean you know just to give you an idea of the biodiversity we have just in the region of piemonte which is one of our 20 regions we have more than how many species of pumpkin was that oh there's like 300 species of pumpkins Oh, so pumpkin beer is a big thing in Italy. The course, there are a lot of mixed feelings about pumpkin beer. Yeah, right there, I, Brian. 
Yeah, you know, pumpkin doesn't have a lot of that sugar necessary to build on, so it's a little no. tricky. So when you say that it was the Galapagos of beer, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, no, like that's actually a lot of, Yeah, a lot, lot of regional flavor and diversity. Absolutely. That's a pretty good thing. Actually, it pushed these brewers to think out of the box. So we got people who purposely oxidized their beer, which is something which normally it's like a big no-no in, you know, brewing practice or other people who got a cigar and, uh, you know, just blew the smoke through their fermenters. So it, it Or kinda... using tobacco beer, literally using tobacco to make a beer with, which you couldn't do in many countries, but in Italy, they're open to doing anything. And, and, and so, Brian, you say brewers in Colorado were key in launching the Italian craft beer movement. Uh, you know, they had a lot of influence on the Italians and how they thought, uh, you know, hoppy beers, for example, you know, just there's so many diverse IPAs in this country. And, you know, here we take it for granted. We could drink, you know, you could just go to three or four different locations and try many different types of IPAs. Right. And, you know, there they don't have, they didn't have that then. And they're still kind of working on that part. But, but there were sort of Colorado beer emissaries, I guess, that went to Italy. Uh, yeah. Well, we got well, Eric from Left Hand, who's like, you know, exactly. his, his wife is Italian. So he's been, you know, from the start uh, traveling Italy and, you know, teaching, praising the word, the hoppy word. This so is that's Eric, Eric Wallace. Absolutely. From Left, from left uh, Hand Brewing in um, um, Longmont. So that's that's for one. But also the first hoppy IPAs, which ever hit Italy, were Great Divide. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was still a Coloradian uh, brewery flying dog. Yeah, that's so. right. I want to know what kind of resistance you met, Alex, in Italy to beer, because it's such a wine place. I mean, you were talking about grape beer, for mm-hmm. instance. I thought, well, that's a nice, safe step for Italians <laughs> to take towards beer. But, you know, was there resistance? Were there even policy obstacles? To- oh, yeah. It's crazy. Like, basically, every politician in Italy owns a winery. And uh, they definitely don't own breweries. So, you know, there is a very strong lobby on the wine industry in Italy. And they've really tried, you know, to make life hard for us. For example, wine doesn't pay taxes. While we are with we beer brewers are the most highly taxed in Europe, one of the most. So that's just to let you to give you an idea. And then the legislation is insane. I've been um, on the board of directors of our Brewers Association for four years and I've seen all sorts. For example, there was a guy who started out brewing in like 98 so one of our first brewers in, in who, Italy yeah in Italy who uh, who wrote uh birra artigianale so craft beer on his bottle and he got fined 11,000 euros for doing that no reason there was no reason he had to take all the bottles that he sold uh, back into his warehouse again and change the labels there's no reason for that but we have a law that says that the guy who applies the law so the funzionario the functionary that applies the, official, the law the official the, it's which all applies the law, can apply it freely as it will can interpret it freely at its at his will so you know, that You're very vulnerable then very, as, always, as a beer indeed. brewer in Italy. Are there other examples that you ran into perhaps personally? Oh, yeah. The I sink. mean, I got uh, <laughs> I got one of my restaurants closed down for a week because we had a sink too many in our bathroom. Go figure. Um, I was uh, sued by the city for having an umbrella up in my bar, which, by the way, I had a regular permit for. And the same guys who signed that permit, then came back six months later and sued me for that same umbrella. And after three years, I went in front of a judge because it took like three years or four. And the judge says, oh, sorry, Mr. Liberati, this is such a big misunderstanding. Well, you know, we'll do nothing about it. And that's OK. For but you. that was three years of your time, Alex yeah. Liberati. We're speaking with him, who's an Italian brewer who has come to Colorado 
to introduce us to the Italian uh, beer scene. And a Denver author, Brian Jansing, is with us as well. He's co-written Italy Beer Country. And uh, put this into perspective for us, Brian, is there a real thirst for beer in Italy? Uh, yeah, very much. Uh, more Italians drink beer outside of the home than they do uh, wine. So it's a preferred drink. Meaning when they go out. Yeah, when they go out, they're drinking beer now uh, oh. rather than wine. Uh, wine, of course, is their daily drink at home. It's with their meals. Um, but beer is so easy to pair with food, and it's such a food culture. It, it's, you know, for them, it's nice to go out and do something a little different and have a beer. Now, you know, they're not – it's not a culture where they really belly up to the bar and just drink beer. It's not quite there. It's not the same kind of – concept. They're, they're, you know, the stereotype of Italians are drinkers, but really Italians don't drink that much alcohol. Well, we got the wine thing, so we're used to, you know, smelling and tasting yeah. as we would be tasting the wine. So that's a good part of the Italian culture of, you know, drinking beer, do, having that same approach. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that we have to consider. For example, it's like we're c- kind of scratching the f- surface of mm-hmm. Italian drinking at the moment in Italy, although we started out in 96, but people drink 29 liters of beer pro capita a year. That's we're the last in Europe, <laughs> along with Greece. So and... you, you see potential. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about your bringing Italian beer to Colorado. So your hope is to open a brewery here mm-hmm. and to introduce Coloradans to what? Well, it's going to be a brew pub. We're going to be on 24th and Champa, and uh, we're going to be uh, showcasing Italian street food and Italian-style beers. So we'd, I'd like personally to Am I going to get that tobacco experience? <laughs> I'm really might. intrigued by you that. You just might. Right? Like, it's this beer. <laughs> you just might. I'm telling you. But um, obviously, it, it I, I really like uh, the local community, the local ingredients here. So I'd like to be brewing out of the box with the local ingredients that we have here, as well as importing some other ingredients from Italy or growing them here. Give me some examples. Uh, well, Sorrento lemons, for example, that mm. they grow in the Sorrento Valley, which is near the Naples. These, um, these lemons are amazing. The yellow they are is shoots in your eyes. The aromas and the, <laughs> the, 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 the taste of it is so peculiar in particular, and they're nearly kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. And so brewing with those, a saison with those lemons is uh, a very particular and unique saison. Absolutely. <laughs> Limoncello. That's what it comes from. Well, compare and contrast a bit the environments uh, in Italy and in Colorado <laughs> for setting up a business. Have you, <laughs> well, had, have you had more support here or are other brewers like uh, you know, kind of sharks and jets here? Well, for someone who wants to do business here in Denver, uh, it's a paradise. I mean, coming from Italy. And apart from that, you know, the fact that, you know, business this is a really business friendly community here uh, apart from that the bre- the brewers community have been amazing i mean they've been so welcoming uh to us they've everyone's pointed us in the right direction put us on the right tracks gave us phone call uh, phone numbers uh connections so way really, way different oh yeah <laughs> well in italy unfortunately yeah it's a bit more yeah, a bit more. Uh, Coming with the sharks. Yeah, kind of. So, <laughs> Brian, just a, a little bit more of the Italian beer scene. So it's growing, was, you but, know, t- yeah, put it into context. Yeah, you know, 10 years ago, you would – it's still a very uh, – even people who have a lot of knowledge about beer, I mean, really are aware of the beer world, still don't realize Italy what Italy's doing. Uh, they are certainly the second – the best in Europe, second probably only to the United States as far as creativity and styles and – um, but, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have really seen very much. But today, you know, the brewers, breweries are opening up in Berlin and uh, there's a uh, like a brew pub or a pub for Italian craft beer in London. So now, it, you know, in the old, 
20 years ago, they were the Italians were learning from the Germans and doing German-style beers. Now Italy's going to Germany and I teaching see. them craft beer because Germany's fallen behind with their laws. And they, they're just starting to do a craft beer scene. Well, get, the people who are right there right now are the Italian craft brewers. And their influence on the Germans is going to be interesting. So it's kind of come all the way around in full circle. We may have beer tourists listening. Would, would <laughs> Italy be a suggested stop for oh, you? Absolutely. Uh, Paul and I, who I wrote the book with, uh, set up Italian craft beer tours. And, you know, it, it, a lot of these places are kind of distant to far away. Uh, we always laugh because when we first started writing the book, you know, they don't have signs up. It's really hard to find these places. Just typical Italians. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Babe, one of the people we were, they were one of the original four frontier uh, breweries and got started in 96. We went to look for their place. It's in a, uh, you know, factory kind of setting and you're driving around looking for them and they didn't have a sign. So when we finally found the place and we talked to them, just a little door, we just knock on it. Oh, it is a place. I see chairs and tables here and he's like, oh, yeah, our sign, it blew down. When we found out how much it cost, we decided not to put one up. <laughs> so. yeah, it sounds like they um, could use some of the business side of this as yeah. well. Gentlemen, thanks so much for Thank being with you. us. Alex Liberati is an Italian beer brewer who now lives in Denver. He's featured in Brian Jansing's book, Italy, Beer Country. Read an excerpt at cprnews.org, where you'll also find photos of some of Liberati's Italian breweries. That's the program for today with special thanks to Nathan Heffel. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio News.